0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health
1: insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin. Dominic Fifield of The Athletic and Anne-Marie Batson, the journalist and broadcaster. They couldn't, could they? Leicester couldn't repeat the trick, defy the odds and the vanity of the so-called Big Six, and win the Premier League again. Well, they're on top of the table at the international break, and this season is being shaped by inconsistency, injury, fatigue, and runs of form. Now, six wins on the bounce. For Leicester, and marie this isn't 2016 all over again, is it?
1: Potentially, yes. I mean, this is a crazy season already and we're not even halfway through. I think the the big sign for me, I think, was when Leicester beat Manchester City at the year he had 5-2. I think that sent a really big signal down to the rest of the league that they're not here just to, to prop up the numbers. They They want to have a good title run and I think they've got players there. Well, they have players there who already know how to win a title. Of course, you know, Jamie Vardy, where's Morgan, of course, a ca- the former captain, Christian Fultz, Cat Spurs, Michael as well in goal, who's been brilliant. He's a solid goalkeeper, particularly when they've had injuries, defence. You need someone who can provide that st- stability in that back line. They've got a big test, though, coming up against Liverpool. And I-, and I don't say that lightly because Liverpool want to again send a message that they want to defend their title. Leicester will send a message saying they want the title again. And they also got in there a player of Johnny Evans' experience. He's somebody who's won titles with Manchester United, I think three titles from that. And then what's even better for Leicester is the young talent. I'm so excited by the young talent that they've got in abundance there. You know, James Madison, who I'm a big fan of, Harvey Barnes, Uri Telsman as well, Wesley Fofana. It's all coming together for Leicester. It's all coming together. And I think they would have learnt a big lesson last season Dropping out the top four, it's not something that the team or Brendan Rodgers want to repeat again.
2: Yeah, speaking of Brendan Rodgers, Dom, obviously a lot of focus will be on him. What do you think he will have learned from that narrow failure of Liverpool's title challenge under him?
3: <laughs> that that it's never over until until the last minute. You never know, you can never feel as if things are are completely going with you. You always have to be sort of wary on, on <laughs> the odd slip. It's look, it's it's a completely different scenario for Rogers now. But he I mean, we should also bear in mind that since since his Liverpool experiences he's he's gone off to Scotland and he's he's become accustomed to to winning trophies and and, and, and knowing and finding out what it takes to to get over the line at the end of a season, it was it was quite early in his managerial career when he when he suffered with Liverpool back in 2014, but he's got that weight of experience behind him now. He's he's established himself as one of the best, most tactically astute coaches in in the top flight. He was a fine choice when Leicester appointed him post Claude Puel last season. Okay, it ended on a downer with 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 the form post lockdown. But actually, if you look at the season in a whole, the progress made was remarkable, and integrating new young players, as as marie suggests, in, into that setup, has really well set up Leicester for the for the future for the next few years. And they can afford to even lose a star, one star performer every summer, and then they're not, they're not it's not detracted from them too much. There's so much going right at that at that club. I I wonder ultimately still whether their squad is going to be deep enough to sustain a proper challenge this year but then actually when you think about it they've got so many injuries at the moment and they've and they they're having these youngsters come in and and, and excel people like Fofana just, just plucked from Ligue 1 straight into into the Premier League and 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 doing wonderfully well so that will offer some hope that they have the depth to maintain a challenge and yeah there'll be tests to come, not least after the international break, but the momentum is with them.
2: Yeah, I suppose if you look at the underlying reasons for their improvement over the last couple of seasons, well, they've always been notable for really good recruitment. I think the recruitment has gone to another level in many ways. Mm. Emery, you know, you mentioned earlier on, Wesley Fofana, only 19, uh, only three goals conceded in his seven games. Now, there's an interesting parallel here. He came from Saint-Etienne. Now, Arsenal took... William Saliba from the same club. They seem hesitant about using him to the point of paranoia. He's not even in their squad, which is mad because he he was he cost over twenty. I think it's 26 million What Leicester do, and is this a lesson for the rest that when they recognise talent and invest in talent, they keep faith with it?
1: Leicester clearly invested money quite shrewdly from the sales of Harry Maguire. Angola, Kante, Danny Drinkwater to some extent as well, and and Ben Tirwell. And then you've got the result of that is having these youngsters come through, like Wesley Fofana. It astounds me that he's 19 years of age and he already, for me, looks like the signing of the season because he's just been able to slot in, make that role his own already. And he's coping admirably with all the injuries that's been going on with Leicester and taking it. To his prime, So I think, yeah, with Saliba, there are things happening in the background with William Saliba. He lost his mother around about a year ago. He's found it a little bit hard to cope with that and also getting settled in England. Not that I'm using that as an excuse, but I think Arsenal are just taking a little bit more time just to ease him into the country and, and then get him used to, to playing for a new team as well. But then you, as you rightly say, Mike, Leicester have shown that if you can, there is a way of bedding a young new player in, particularly a player that's come from abroad, who's not used to to being playing in another country, getting used to the culture, the language, the football style, the pace of the Premier League as well, because it's the best in the world. It can be done. It's just a shame that Mr it hasn't worked out in the way that I think Arsenal and Arteta have hoped, but I'm prepared to give them time and keep enjoying watching uh, Wesley Fofana do what he does best.
2: Yeah, I suppose if you look elsewhere within that squad, Dom, you've got other examples of shrewd recruitment Chengis under you know, he's becoming freer from injury that hampered his time at roma you know, i think he spent three years there and didn't really fulfill himself and at the other end of the spectrum we've got jamie vardy is he the perfect advert for not
3: extending your international career yeah, you could argue that definitely. I mean, there have been times when England have regretted his decision to retire, perhaps a bit prematurely from from that stage. But the bit part role that he was enjoying with England wasn't enough for him to fulfil him. And actually, it's, it it clearly has had a a beneficial effect on his on his club form. He, he's, you know, he he as as a player on on the pitch, he is key to everything. Less to do, his cutting edge is as sharp as ever. I mean, it's. Some of the goals that he scores—I know he missed a penalty this weekend—but but he's some of the goals he scores, and 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 the fear in which he he strikes in opposing back lines, and it, to the extent that they, they they almost change the way they play, Leicester are you know wary of of the, the threat that he poses. I mean that that is key to everything Leicester do and 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 their entire approach. And yeah, if Leicester are going to sustain the challenge this season, then. You'd imagine that Jamie Vardy would would be leading their line and scoring twenty plus Premier League goals. And he's he's well on course for that already. A golden boot winner last season. And, and you know, a, a player who's Indian the Indian summer of his career has just been extended two, three years now. Mm.
2: You know, as, as I said, Leicester at the top at the international break, Amory, but there are more problems than ever surrounding the international programme because of the pandemic. We have the unique situation in Denmark, which probably affects half a dozen or so Premier League players, and specifically in this instance, Casper Schmeichel. So if Casper Schmeichel goes with Denmark during this break, he misses Leicester's game against Liverpool on the restart on November the 21st. Now that surely is unthinkable, and isn't it reckless to continue international football with all the travelling involved during a pandemic?
1: Yes, I, I, I think so. I think uh, we'll probably talk about friendlies in a bit. I have an issue with um, the friendly side of things. I think this is, I just don't think you can treat this year as, as business as usual. And you rightly say, Mike, some players will have to skip international, the international fixture in Denmark because of, I mean, this is a new one for me, of a new strain of coronavirus moving from Minx to humans, Mm. which means that minks will have to be, it's quite a lot of minks actually, will have to be culled. And the government has said, our government has said, there is no exceptions to this quarantine policy, whereas before elite players, of course, could travel abroad. And if when they came back into England, they'd have to quarantine for 14 days, that window has now closed. And I think the example that you gave there with Kashmir michael he's been quoted in The Telegraph saying that he calls this politics. He doesn't think this has a lot to do with the science and hopes that the government can come to their senses. It's such a difficult one, isn't it? Because of the fact it is that if it, if the players were able to go and play, like Kasper Bike will go and play in Denmark, there is that 14, you know, they would have to quarantine and then miss key games. And I think that's where Jose Mourinho has said already for Pierre-Emile Hoberg will not be going. He will not be travelling to Denmark purely because of this 14-window quarantine because he will miss out on crucial games For Spurs and FIFA have already confirmed that they said at the beginning of the pandemic that clubs are allowed to withdraw players from international squads over coronavirus concerns. But it's not just Danish players that are affected by this. There are Swedish players as well. Icelandic players. Runnison at Arsenal. I mentioned Swedish players. You've got Victor Lindelof, of course, and Gilfie Sigurdsson at Everton. This is a mess. And I don't think that there is a one size solution that's going to solve this. I would say, putting my sensible hat on, I think in this instance that players don't travel to Denmark because of this unique situation of the strain of coronavirus, being able to transfer from one particular animal to human. I think that maybe is a step too far. But I also think that they need to think about the next six months because international matches are not going to go away. It's a congested calendar. How are we going to manage players' welfare as well? The travel restrictions, each country has their different travel restrictions or coronavirus restrictions or lockdown restrictions as well. I think there needs to be a forward thinking plan about how this is going to be managed over the next few months or so, because I appreciate that international managers want time with their players but this is an exceptional year and maybe some of these international matches will not be able to go ahead purely because of this.
2: Well, that's the nub of it, isn't it? They're not their players. They're the club's players, ultimately. And, you know, I understand a manager like Gareth Southgate needing time with his squad to reacquaint them almost with each other. And I would say that friendlies, which usually are... are pretty irrelevant anyway. I, I think you know they, sh- they should be scrapped, to be perfectly honest. And it's no surprise, is it, Dom, to see or to hear the angst of club managers going into this break. You've got players on pretty sophisticated fitness and welfare programmes. They don't know whether they'll be followed. And again, no surprise to see Jose Mourinho warning Wales not to destroy the work they're doing with Gareth Bale.
3: Yeah, it's an interesting. When I spoke with a couple of sports scientists and medical staff at a Premier League club prior to the start of the season, then well, they knew obviously this was going to be a very congested season with a lot of games crammed in in a shorter amount of time, and their attitude to towards the the first two international windows of the season was very much if, if they're going to be if my players are going to be taken off to their international teams, then we want them to be playing, we want them to be getting game time in their legs. Which will actually benefit their fitness. Now, but but the November one is actually the first of those international windows where they were like, Oh, I'm not sure at that stage they could probably do with a breather. They've had this run of some of these have had remarkable runs of of, of games for their club sides, whether that be in European competition, in the Premier League, in domestic cup competitions as well. And now actually we're getting to the stage where the soft tissue injuries. Are are coming in because of fatigue, because of physical and mental fatigue. So this is the first opportunity that that a lot of those sports scientists would be going to their, to their managers, I imagine, and saying, "Look, you know, I'm not sure this is this is beneficial for player X or player Y to be going off with their respective national team." So I can completely understand where Mourinho is coming from. The, the friendly thing is utterly baffling to me. I, I don't I don't get it. I don't I don't see. How it benefits a manager to an international manager, even to to have a match in which you might lose a player with a soft tissue injury ahead of two competitive fixtures. I mean, it's particularly if they're if these players are entering their red zones in terms of fitness when they link up with the national sides. So, why? I mean, for why are England playing Ireland next week or this week? Why, why is that happening? I mean, it's 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 absolutely remarkable and 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 probably negligent to be honest i can understand the competitive fixtures and 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 why the the fa or the or uefa or fifa are so desperate to to retain them because let's face it every single governing body out there is is fighting tooth and nail to retain relevance to their respective competitions they they don't want to lose it even in an exceptional year they 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 need to to make sure that the nations league or or the qualification for what's now become euro 2021 remains relevant so so they will they will fight tooth and nail to to retain those competitions and ensure that they're still you know treated seriously by by national associations but but the friendlies no just, just train, just go to St George's Park and train in a bubble. You know, maintain all the fitness regimes and programmes that the players have got at their clubs. Ensure that they're fresh and ready to go when you've got a, a competitive game in the Nations League next week. You don't need to be playing a friendly this week. Yeah, I have to say, I agree with that. But
2: we're not going to stop this becoming a real point of, of issue. When we look at it, Amory, we've got Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, all using this weekend to make the point about the demands on their players. Now, they've used that in the context of pushing for five substitutes. Is that a big club indulgence or actually is it sensible?
1: I think it's sensible given the times that we're in and I keep using that word exceptional. This is exceptional times and I think it would benefit every single club in the Premier League to have five subs. I get it that some of the smaller clubs in inverted commas may see this as an advantage for the bigger clubs. But as Dom has talked about and alluded to, it's about managing the soft tissue. It's about managing players that they don't go into the red zones at crucial times when there are big double headers coming up or points needed on the board kind of matches when that pressure really does ramp up. You need your players to be at optimum level. And I think to do that, it would make perfect sense to me to have the five subs so you can rotate and bring on fresh legs when you need. And you're right, Mike, at some point, Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp and now, uh, you know, Mourinho always talking about the congested schedule that happens with the Champions League and and with Europa as well. And they've got a point. They also have to battle with the broadcasting schedule as well. I didn't realise when I was reading the reports about when Oli Gunnar Solskjaer had his mini rant about playing on the 12.30 on Saturday, I didn't realise that he or Manchester United had approached the Premier League a month ago to ask if this match could be rescheduled or moved to the Sunday, and it was turned down. They saw a month ago that this particular match was going to be an issue, and they couldn't move it because of the broadcast issues or broadcasting rights. So at least he was looking ahead and raised the concern. It's not like he did it a few days beforehand. So, uh, you know, you've got to give him some credit for that. But I think, the, you know, the broadcasting demands, squad management, the calendar, coronavirus, player injuries there's a lot going on at the moment so if there's anything that the game can do to help ease some of that pressure by having five subs I think it's a really sensible idea
3: Uh, can I leap in there I completely agree with what Anne-Marie says on on all those issues including the, the broadcasting scheduling which can appear deliberately unhelpful sometimes however on the five subs rule I just don't. I I don't buy it. I'm afraid. I just it warps the competition beyond in the Premier League, unrealistically. You, when you've got a situation where a big club can bring on five international players in the second half of a game, and we're not talking smaller clubs. We're probably talking 14 out of the other 20 can't. Quite frankly if you're talking about squad management, well, those managers of the elite club should be managing their squads by picking teams that are fresh at the beginning that haven't been playing in midweek. They can do that. They've got the depth. The, I, I think it, the, the idea that you can chuck in five players of that calibre after, you know, late on in a game, just, it, it just, it completely detracts from the from the competitive nature of, of the fixture. And, and actually, it also detracts from the spectacle. I mean, I was at, Stanford Bridge last night sorry last week for the Champions League game against Wren where they can use five substitutes and that second half just felt like an international friendly it was it was so disrupted by the the number of people coming onto the pitch and and you know and, and the use of these the constant the constant substitutions and everybody trying to readjust and work out where they were playing and who they were playing with now it was the second half was a complete non-event to be honest
2: you know I suppose you know Pep Guardiola used only one sub against Liverpool didn't he Dom it's interesting you' were talking to to sports scientists there was a point Manchester United arrived back at 4 am on Thursday uh, after that game in Turkey. Now you know in the days where we all used to travel with the teams we were used to those bleary-eyed landings weren't we? Fergie when he was at Manchester United trusted his players and they used to stay overnight. Is there a scientific reason why they have to dash back like that? Surely it's better to stay overnight, get the nutrition right, have some good sleep
3: and then come home. Look, it's it's probably an argument and clubs will probably differ. Different sports scientists will differ on this. But I I would imagine that Manchester United sports scientists will have assessed the, the two options that they had and... And deemed it better to be back in the air and and back at Carrington, uh, where I presume, like most Premier League clubs, they probably have sleeping facilities anyway, as in beds, and maybe players could get some shut eye when they when they get in back into to Manchester than staying over in Istanbul and 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 having that lengthy journey time on the Thursday. I mean. They they will assess this. This isn't done randomly. these sports scientists are out there working out the best plans and planning as as best they can. The unnecessary element of this was the fact that they had the early kickoff on the Saturday. Although again, it's it is it is fairly crazy how how the scheduling of all this is, and you you wonder whether whether maybe had had paper per view TV been scrapped. For the weekend just gone whether there might have been a logic for example of putting the Palace Leeds for example as a 12.30 game two clubs that weren't in Europe in that week and then you could have televised Everton Manchester United at three o'clock quite easily and that would have given those players a few extra hours to prepare and, and it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? A few extra hours in a week to, to prepare for a Premier League fixture, but it, it does actually make a difference. You talk to these guys and it, it really does make a difference. Look, the balance, they've got to get back at some point from Turkey. That's got to happen at some stage. So, you know, you, you're juggling between whether you do it after the game or the next morning, fine. But just having a few extra hours preparation, it, it's not an exaggeration to say that, that, that they can feel key to both sports scientists and managers.
2: Yeah, I suppose the issue is that everyone has their own priorities, don't they? And, you know, I don't purport to speak for the broadcasters, but it is a matter of financial fact that the broadcasting deals are underwriting football at the moment. You know, without that, everyone's in in real problems. You know, going back to Liverpool, actually, Anne-Marie, now they're third behind Spurs on goal difference. They had another soft tissue injury, Trent Alexander-Arnold, What did you make of that performance, the nature of that performance against Manchester City? There was some real discipline ingrained within the squad, wasn't there, which enabled them to shift tactically from 4-4-2 to 4-2-4. Was that a really mature performance by Liverpool?
1: Bold and mature, for sure. I know, you know, before this game, there was the big debate about whether Diego Jota or Bobby Firmino would play in that upfront three. And I predicted, I thought Jota would play I did think he would play and I got told, no, 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 Klopp would never drop Bobby Firmino because of the dynamic relationship that he has with Sadio Mane and Mo Salah, which I I totally understand. They're a formidable trio, not trying to diss it whatsoever. But I did think with Jota, the amount of goals that he's been scoring, the explosiveness that he brings to that side, I did think he was deserving of a starting place. And then when I saw the lineup, I think my eyes must have popped out of my head because I couldn't believe it. I saw the two notes. I'm thinking and I, I I, I messaged one of my Liverpool friends who's a massive Liverpool fan. And I said, how's this going to work? Because I couldn't work out the formation in my head at all. And basically my friend said to me, look, it looks like Klopp is going to put Jota in, in the midfield and he'll work as a creative player and still have Bobby Firmino doing what he does with Salah Amane. And it worked, I think, for the first half. I think both teams, you could see they were looking very tired in the second half. There was a lot of heavy legs going on. And I think there was a lot of... That game would have required a lot of mental strength. And we don't really appreciate that. These are the two top teams in the league. One who wants to defend their title, one who wants to reclaim that title. There's a lot of pressure that comes with that, obviously. So mentally, those those two teams would have been really, really going for it. So... For me, it was very bold. It's sad about Trent Alexander-Arnold. I feel for him because he is, I love him as a player. But then you've got Nico Williams who could come in and James Milner, who's just the most versatile player ever <laughs> for me. So, yeah, I mean, I was expecting more. I've got to be honest with you guys. I, I was expecting a lot more goals, but I could see, in, as I mentioned in the second half, it was starting to lag a a little bit for both teams. So I think, you know, a one-all draw was the right result.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that um, sort of downgrade in the second half basically testifies to the problems that we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes. I think you've got to give some praise, Dom, to someone like Joe Gomez. He's had four different partners in the last four games. Put that into context uh, about of the City attack. You know, Gabriel Jesus he's scored in six of his last seven premier league appearances but is he really a successor to aguero where are their goals going to
3: come from consistently i think it's a bit dangerous to assume that anyone can can fill the void of of sergio aguero by himself given the sheer number of goals that he scored over the years at manchester city you're probably looking at a distribution of 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 goals across the team and 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 and, and to be honest that's well, that's very, very plausible within what Pep Guardiola and the style of play that he gets his his team playing. I mean, when you've got a Raheem Sterling who's more than capable of scoring 20, 25 goals a season, probably more. Jesus has has just been has been brilliant of late and has always looked one of those players that that has has the potential to go and and be that twenty plus goal striker as well. And you've got you've got these guys flying at you from all. All corners, really. I mean, if you're a defender like Joe Gomez, you don't know where you, to look, you know, who's coming at you next. It's City, when they're on song, have that sort of air of we are unstoppable here and, and attacking from all angles. You, I mean, I haven't even mentioned Mares, who can cut from one side and, you know, attack minded fullbacks, Kevin de Bruyne doing what Kevin de Bruyne does in pockets of space that only he can find. It's that they're a frightening prospect. I mean, I don't think they're necessarily. Firing consistently at the moment, certainly in in the in the Premier League, but that that will come. That will come. Every, everybody sort of feels a bit as if they're feeling into this season and and the vagaries of it that we've we've already mentioned before. It's getting getting used to to how it's going to be for the next six seven months. But City City are on a, an upward trajectory again. That they, they they will get back into into contention right at the top, and and Liverpool will be up there as well. So it, it's it's. It's brilliant to see, and it, and there will be times, you know, over the winter where the attacking play mastered by by City and Liverpool will warm us. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. I suppose if you if you look at it, Amory,
2: team building is a bit like painting the fourth bridge, isn't it? You know, you you, you start at one end and you get it to the other and start again. When you see, when you look at City, they're definitely more solid at the back, aren't they? Diaz and Laporte seem to be getting a good partnership. Uh, Cancelo's probably a better all-round option at left-back. But balanced to get that, do they need a a reboot in midfield? They seem a bit static there. You know, Rodri and and, uh, Hundigan together don't seem to really have... They seem to slow everything down.
1: I agree with that assessment, actually, Mike. They do seem to slow anything down. And, And the beauty about City... Is that the explosive pace that they have in that midfield? Once Kevin De Bruyne has got the ball, or once Raheem Sterling's got the ball, nine out of ten times they're going to they're going to score a goal. And I think that's something that that Pep will need to to look at going forward. I agree with you about the the you know the Diaz and Laporte partnership. As long as Laporte stays fit, they need him to stay fit. He's going to be a crucial player for them in that in that back line for sure. I think they've pretty much kept a, a clean sheet between the pair up until the, the Liverpool game, of course, but they're a good partnership. He should stick with that partnership. I was a bit surprised actually just talking about, thinking about Kevin De Bruyne and missing that penalty yesterday. I think my jaw dropped to the floor. He'd be the last person on, on this earth thought, I thought would miss a, a penalty for sure. But anyway, sorry, going back to the main point. Yes, they need to sort out the, the midfield for sure. I'm not sure, you know, Gerwen, I, I, I've never been entirely sold on him. And I think it's starting to show now. But Man City have that luxury of having funds to be able to sort out situations. They're able to, dare I say, throw money to solve problems. So perhaps when the January window opens, or maybe in the summer, Pep Guardiola will look to bring in some new players.
2: Okay. Well, if we are talking about penalties, I'll I'll be very charitable and not mention the uh, Adam Ola Lukman penalty Panenka on on Friday night. And actually, on Friday night, Dom, it's been a, a weekend of constant changes at the top, hasn't it? It began with Southampton t- going to the top of the table. A bit of a trite one, this, but are they
3: the new Leicester? I thought Leicester were the new Leicester.
0: Oh. <laughs> 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 that, that is, true. It's, that is
3: um, true. It was. It's brilliant to see, how it just just showcases the the job that Hassan Huttal has has instigated over the last twelve months. Since the nine nil at home to to Leicester, they are a a, a team again, a, a team that of high press, a team of of players with with points to prove, players that are pinching themselves probably at being in these in this position, but but absolutely thriving under his management. They they they, they personify that the whole team style personifies the the head coach and and his approach to to life, let alone football. They fly at people and they and they suffocate the life out of opponents. And I mean, Newcastle were 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 pretty poor and passive on 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 Friday, but they weren't allowed to play by by Southampton's frantic approach. And you know what? In this in this season where we we've 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 been blessed in a few seasons back, we had the sort of Liverpool Man City constant rivalry at the top, and you know who who's going to edge it home. And when they were head and shoulders above everybody else in the division. Last season was just a procession, even post-lockdown when, when the title was as good as sorted out anyway. This year, what is sustaining interest at the moment, what is in in this alien environment that is football behind closed doors, it is, is the unpredictability of it all. And the fact that you can go through a weekend and have four different leaders of the top d- division is absolutely brilliant. It's a throwback to, to when you and I, Mike, were... Watching football back in the seventies and eighties, pal. Um, yeah, it, it's yeah. it's absolutely it's that that is the breath of fresh air that you can have. Southampton doing what they did on Friday, followed by Spurs on Saturday or Leicester or who else? Somebody else led the Premier League for five minutes in there as well. I'm pretty sure. It's it's it's, it's did it's, they? Oh, probably. I least lose lose track, don't you? That's <laughs> that's the point. I mean, it's it's. It is brilliant in in that in that respect. Look, in time, I'm sure that you know the natural order will be restored, and we'll see Liverpool and Man City powering through the through the all comers and 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 establishing themselves back at the top. But at the moment, this is great to see.
2: It certainly is. Yeah, about Spurs, Emery. This is the first time they went top since August 2014. It was a very Mourinho win. At the Hawthorns, wasn't it? Courtesy of Harry Kane's hundred and fiftieth Premier League goal. Do you get a sense? There, Johnny Northcroft did a very good interview with him at the weekend, where Kane has been stung by the accusations that he's been a bit underhand in winning penalties.
1: This is a tricky one for me because I I, I I watched the Adam Lallana Harry Kane incident over and over and and I was trying to work it out. I was looking at. Harry Kane's body language, looking at Adam Lallana's body language, looking at their positioning, and I'm trying to see, I'm trying to work out what's going on here. The one thing I will say is that Adam Lallana was very lucky not to end up injured himself because he held, he fell from quite a height, and the way he landed, I thought he was lucky not to do his wrist or his arm and his shoulder. So that's the first thing. The way that I look at it is that for me, Kane backed into Adam Lalana and then went down and won a penalty. That's all I can see. Whether or not I'm not in Harry Kane's head, I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know if he's thinking that he's trying to foul Adam Lallana on purpose or it was just a fluke or what. I don't know. I can just take it how I see it. I'm hoping that he didn't do it to win. To, to I don't want to use the C word, but cheat. That's not for me what Harry Kane is all about. Troy Deeney came out and defended Harry Kane. He's the type of player who will do... Anything to win, which is what any athlete wants to do, you will go to those fine margins because you want the win. I'm struggling with this concept in my head that Harry Kane is somebody who would who would make something happen for the sake of it. I don't want to think badly of him and that and I try not to think badly of people anyway. I just don't want to think of him in that way. I just but the question is the the question needs to be asked. I think potentially he was stung by it. I'd like to think if he was he would use that as motivation. That would fuel him. He wants to win the golden boot again. There is no doubt about that. I think it's going to go down to the wire for that between him and Jamie Vardy for sure. But it's it's a, it's such a hard one because I, I don't like to try and speculate what's going through somebody's head at that moment because I'm not that person. I can only say what I see and that's what I saw. People will probably disagree with me. They have disagreed with me on it. Yeah, he's a a cheater and da da, da 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 and it's it's a really hard one for me, Mike. I'm not sure. I'm not sure.
0: Mm.
2: I suppose penalties are a vexed issue, anyway, aren't they, Dom? You know, you had the Leicester one yesterday. You had the ones in the in the in the City game. You've got this whole psychodrama around penalties now. You know, if if Sterling had gone down, he probably would have won a penalty. Where are we going with all this? Because, you know, people at the moment, one, don't seem to know what the handball rule is still. And, you know, we've got VAR, where if you point in the right direction at the wrong time, you're you're going to be pulled up and denied a goal. The game, no one really knows
3: what's going on in the game anymore, do they? No, no, it's true. It's, that is the case. It, to be honest, if, if a goal goes in now, or if there's a penalty appeal now, I think as supporters watching it on the television we haven't got a clue whether a goal or a, is going to be awarded or a penalty given we just we just don't know no one knows and it a lot of it i suspect does boil down to what the on-field referee has seen in in terms of the more marginal penalty in the, in the so the old fashioned penalties the challenges i mean you know some of them are getting some of them are getting overturned by var and, and reminded that, that you know I think, actually, I think the Fulham one on Saturday was like that. The referee didn't give it at the time when it was actually a really clear penalty of the Ben Ramas challenge on kearney but that the handball thing is mystifying i mean i felt I felt for patrick bamford um, with, with off sides on at the weekend as well but then and yesterday you got the handballs with with gomez and and in in the wolves Leicester game as well i mean it's just utterly random it's just it's completely random and, and and I would like to say that it's adding to the drama of it all but it isn't really it's just detracting from the whole spectacle and making everybody angry <laughs> but that that you know I suppose I suppose it you could say that there's, that there's drama involved in some way but it's just it's so ludicrous I go back to the previous Friday night there was a a very comfortable home win for Wolves against Palace, where Palace were awarded a penalty that was eventually chalked out for a legitimately for an offside. That's fair enough, but there was a there was a worse penalty that wasn't given later on, and the VAR looked at it, and you're sort of thinking, well, how is this happening? And then and then the VAR gets involved even later than that and sends off a player for a challenge that was very similar to the penalty that wasn't given. I mean, I, I, mate, it's a it's baffling but everybody's baffled at least at least there isn't I don't think there's anyone out there actually knows what's going on so I suppose we can take heart in that as much
2: Hmm. okay well I'll give you give you a couple maybe a minute to talk about Palace obviously there was a lot of attention paid to to the Bamford incident but that was a really good performance by Palace against Leeds wasn't it and is Eze the catalyst for a much more expansive approach
3: well, possibly yes, but I'd also suggest that leeds united are probably a catalyst for a more expansive approach as well because no one is going to come to sellers Park and be as open as that this season, not even the big teams i mean the really big teams i think you, you as a as a as a as a side setting out to play against Leeds you know how they're going to approach it and you know they're going to be holes you can exploit and Roy Hodgson did that he had a far more fluid midfield he had you know, legs in there with Reiderwell and MacArthur ahead of a sort of more traditional defensive midfielder, and, and that really helped Palace move the ball quicker. Eze Eze's got a huge future in the game. We all know that he's he's, he's such a talent, and it's going to take him time to, to find his feet at Premier League level. He's he's found it difficult up to that Leeds game to to make a, a proper impression. He's just showing flashes, but the the very fact that he could thrive on Saturday was probably as much down to the space that was afforded him and, and the the fact that Palace moved the ball quicker against opponents who were more intent on going forward than sitting back in defence than anything else. I, I suspect he will prove his pedigree. I, mean, I know he will prove his pedigree over, over time, but it is still a matter of patience with Eze. Mm. Patience. With your club hat on, anne
2: have oh you got,
1: no <laughs>
2: have, have, have you got patience with Arsenal? What went, on, what went on against Aston Villa? They're
1: Amazing. A, the
2: inconsistency <laughs> of this season is summed up by Arsenal, isn't it?
1: Oh my Congratulations to Villa You played Arsenal to a tee yesterday And congratulations to the Aston Villa women as well The Aston Villa, the Aston Villa teams for so the men and women had a great day yesterday That is for sure Grim is the word, Mike, that I would describe it. I was watching that game on a big screen and my hands were covering my eyes. Jack Grealish and uh, Ross Barkley and Ollie Watkins carved up Arsenal yesterday. Arsenal didn't turn up. Arteta made big changes after the Mulder win. And after that away win at Manchester United, you would think that would give Arsenal some level of confidence against Villa and it just wasn't there. They didn't get out of the blocks. They looked sluggish. I mean, I like Thomas Partey. I think he's he's going to be a fantastic player for Arsenal, but I don't know what was going on with him yesterday. He barely dribbled. He barely cleared the ball. So it was no wonder that Arteta took him off at half time. I still question, and I understand the reason why, but I do still question about why Emi Martinez was sold to Villa. I do think he's better at the ball at his feet than Leno. I think he's, he, he, commands confidence. He did command confidence in that back line. Oh, and Arteta needs to figure out what to do with Pepe, I think. That's a big question mark for me. Willian was terrible. Lacazette, question mark. Saka needs a rest. I'm worried about him. I'm worried about Saka. He's an immense talent. Like, like brilliant for me. Like Dominic was talking about Eze, he's going to be, he's going to be fantastic for the game. I just don't want him to head down the road that Jack Wilshire did. So I think Saka needs a little bit of a break. And I think you need, I think Arteta does need to think about players who understand what it means to play in an Arsenal shirt, like Joe Willock, like Reese Nelson, like Eddie Nketiah. They just bring something a little bit different, a bit of pizzazz, a bit of arrogance to it and, and that was sorely missing yesterday and yeah grim grim is the word when the whistle went up at full time.
2: Right. What about Chelsea Dom? They seem to be emerging as title contenders, don't they? Just dwell a little bit if you could please also on Hakim Zayesh. Is he
3: potentially a bigger influence than Eden Hazard? I think that's a big call because I think we we underestimate just how good Eden Hazard was at Chelsea. It's easy to overlook the fact that he won two Premier League titles, a couple of Europa leagues, and was he illuminated Stanford Bridge for a long period of his seven years stint at the club. He scored a lot of goals. Ziek is slightly different. He, he's he's a very clever creator by the look of things. He does seem to have adapted brilliantly, quickly to to life in the Premier League. You, you, I think there was a, there were there were a few question marks over whether he would stand up to the physicality of it all, but he well he has. He's also a very very clever player in in finding space, and that that left foot is well, it went from uh, I don't know it was, it was it was a wand at the weekend with, with it, absolutely absolutely absolute, absolutely glorious left footed delivery from from deep, whether they, whether that's shots or, or passes flung over for overlapping players. I mean he's he's he looks as if he'll have a a hugely positive effect on Chelsea. And if he, he'd probably be of the attacking signings that were made, I know Werner's hit the ground running and and scored seven in seven or something daft. Havertz is clearly going to take a bit of time to adapt. He's much younger than than the others. But Ziek is is probably the of those lavish forward recruits the one that's going to make them the the biggest immediate impact i'd imagine he looks as if he's he's his, his pedigree is established he's he's thriving he's he, he i know he had the injuries in pre-season but he he also had longer time to adapt he was over in this country from may june time because given the dutch league had finished in march and and he just he just looks settled and has hit the ground running which is which is brilliant. In in terms of in terms of Chelsea's challenge, I mean it's a, it's a big ask to get them to to challenge for the title, but but in this crazy season they're actually showing a bit of consistency weirdly. I know we got sort of hoodwinked by the the home defeat to to Liverpool very early on and the the couple of three all frantic three three all draws when at West Brom and at home to Southampton, but when Chelsea have played Thiago Silva with Kurt Zouma and Edouard Mondi in in goal, they've they've had that solidity that, that they lacked for so long certainly throughout last season when they conceded 54 premier league goals and and that will be the key if they've got the foundations all these attacking talents can thrive they've got they've, they've settled upon a formation now conte can fill that role in anchoring midfield for for the foreseeable future they've got two attacking number eights, whether that's Mount, whether that's Havertz, whether that's Kovacic, who can who can bomb forward and supplement the attack. They've got brilliant fullbacks now. Chilwell and Reese James are absolute revelations. They're looking superb with their delivery and their forward thrust. And and that front line, you could have any combination of five or six players because they've got the resources. So all the ingredients are there. A couple of injuries to a you know an injury to Tiago Silva and Edward Mondi would would probably set them back, but you know, they're moving in the right direction rapidly.
0: Mm.
2: You, you spoke about uh, Aston Villa having a good weekend, both in the men's and the women's game, Amory. marie you know, Manchester United went to the top of the WSL yesterday by beating Arsenal. Sorry about that. And also Manchester United, the men's team, won at Everton. I suppose the question with them is, can they be trusted?
1: I think they needed this win yesterday. That was the sense that I was getting before kickoff. When I was looking at social media, the fans were the fans were saying we need a win and they got that heading into the international break. What they need now is consistency and hunger to score goals. And I think the consistency is the issue for Manchester United. Dom used a really lovely word actually when he was talking about Chelsea. It was solidifying. And I think that's where Manchester United are still for me a little bit wobbly in certain areas on the pitch. I'm not sure that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer necessarily knows who his best 11 is right now and therefore keeps tinkering with the formation. We've seen that he's tried to use the diamond in some certain situations and it hasn't worked and he's reverted back to something else and then it has worked. I do think they need to press right from the start rather than letting the game start a bit slow and then get themselves into it. I think Fred and, and McTominay is a really really good partnership and I think he needs to stick with that going forward for sure because for Fred he can push through the line Bruno you know Fernandez is quality no question marks about him I think Luke Shaw actually had a decent game against Everton as well and I think after the result it was a good opportunity to you know for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to say you know There's still some way to go for Manchester United, but an opportunity for him to vent and release a little bit of pressure and give some hope back to the the long-suffering Man United fans. But the one thing I will say is the United cannot afford to have another shocker like they did against Istanbul. And I think if that was to happen again, unfortunately, the questions about Ole and Solskjaer's tenure at the club, I think would really come into question.
2: Yeah, I think this story is going to run and run. But let's try and pull everything together if we could. Our thoughts for the
3: day. Do you want to start, Dom? I'm just going to apologise to Anne-Marie on this one because it's an Aston Villa-related one. He's not involved in the England squad and his teammate Jack Grealish will... Will presumably hog the limelight for much of this week as the, the nation clamours for for Grealish's involvement in these forthcoming games, not least against Ireland, you know, you know, a, a, a nation that that hopes to to claim Grealish as their own. But I wanted to talk a bit about Ross Barkley, who has been an absolute revelation since since joining Aston Villa on loan from Chelsea, a player whose career appeared to be meandering, petering out. He was he was a sort of bit part player at Chelsea, someone that, that that you know would get a couple of games in and you'd think, oh, he's finally gonna take off and we're gonna see some of the form that he showed at Everton in his youth. And then it would all sort of fizzle out and, and he'd be back on the fringes and usurped by bigger names in that Chelsea midfield. But he went to, to Villa as a very specific type of signing, the type of player that would complement Jack Grealish, but would sit in a, a midfield, a tact minded midfield, anchored by Douglas Louise and, and with two eights, a bit like the Chelsea play now, actually, with two eights who are forward thinking and bombing forward. And and my word, hasn't he done well so far? I mean, you, see, you look at the the winning goal against Leicester a few weeks back, but actually. His his whole contribution in virtually every match that he's played, not least at the Emirates on Sunday, he he has is, he is bossed teams. He has been creative. His link-up play with Grealish and his full-backs is outstanding. And he suddenly looks the player again that Chelsea thought they were signing from Everton all those years back. And this, we're probably witnessing a a career that is being revitalised. It, it's probably too late for him to get back into the England set-up because others have usurped him in that, not least Phil Foden and Grealish. But Aston Villa are going to really benefit from his presence this season. He's been brilliant so far. Yeah, it's all about unlocking talent, isn't
2: it? And there's no one way of doing so. Anne-Marie, what would you like to tell us about?
1: So my thought for the day is the mission statement that's been released by Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElmany about their proposed takeover for Wrexham AFC it's a beautiful piece of writing if you haven't had the chance to look at it please go to the Wrexham website and look at it because I think it, it lays out exactly what they will want to do for the club they talk about their goal they talk about their guiding principles they talk about hard promises they always talk about beating Chester as well, which I think is brilliant, which is repeated several times. But you know what did it for me, Mike? When they talk about, they talk about what they want for the club in terms of investment and they want it to be forward thinking and progressive, but they also recognise the importance of Enhancing the club's reputation, but having the continued presence, for example, of the club's honorary president, I think that's a lovely touch. Recognising and being respectful of the Gresford colliery disaster. They said that will remain sacrosanct, which I think is quite, you know, that's a lovely touch as well. And also talking about that, you know, the story isn't about them. It's about the club. It's about the fans. It's about the community. And I couldn't have, you know, if I put my former PR hat on, this is a perfect way to say exactly what the plan is, what you want to do, but also recognising the love the community has for the club and not wishing to push that aside at all, that in fact they want to enhance it even more. So if you have the opportunity to go and have a look at it on the website, please do, because it's a, I think it's a beautiful piece of writing.
2: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I also, it's strange, isn't it? There's so much alien about what's going on in football at the moment that we are actually discovering the true importance of a football club as a source of community pride and common allegiance. And we are seeing some good things come out of this. And I know there's not much good news around these days, but in the manner of all football managers in hard times, I'm determined to take the positives. There's no apology for returning to Marcus Rashford. His moral leadership has forced another government U-turn on childhood hunger. True to his style, there was no triumphalism, merely gracious thanks and a call for kindness. He's a hero of his time. So too, in his way, is Chris Sutton. His campaigning for football to take dementia seriously is deeply personal since the disease has struck his father. But it's collectively vital because it should force football to face its responsibilities to its players. Together, we can do great things. And I hope you think we've done great things today. Thanks very much to Anne-Marie and Dominic and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.